Hi, this is Zoe Routh, and this is the Zoe Routh Leadership Podcast. I love to work with CEOs and their teams on people stuff, the tough stuff of leadership, and the most rewarding part of leadership. My guest today is a remarkable leader. He's had a vast array of leadership experiences. He is currently the executive officer for the Australian Medical Students Association, which is a peak body for 17,000 medical students across Australia and a staff of 250. So this is a complex, big organization. His name, by the way, is Adrian Armitage. He has also had a number of other roles, and he was um, where I first met him when he was a senior manager with the Australian Computer Society, the ACT chapter. And he did an incredible job of building that whole wing of the business up in the time that he was there. And when I first met him, I was struck by how dedicated he was to his job and in terms of being of service to its members. And I think that ethos has carried him through to his current role in the Medical Students Association. He is a strong believer in the power of people and of connecting people. And I've known him to be a consummate networker and a very humble man to boot. Not only that, but in this interview, I discover how wise he is as well. And I'm delighted that he shares his experience with us. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it. Send it along to somebody by pressing the forward button on your device to share it with somebody who would benefit from the insights of somebody who's lived far and wide, including being global marketing manager for Cambridge University. So he's been all over the world. He's had all sorts of different roles. Let's do it. Adrian, so good to see you. Welcome to the show. Yeah, good to see you, Zoe. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. You have such a wealth of experience in different contexts as a leader. You know, there's the university sector in the UK, and then there's computers here in Australia, and now the medical world. Tell me, what's been what's been a significant highlight for you over your journey? Well, it's been a, a journey of just wonder and, and excitement. I think that if you approach business and, and life and uh, leadership and so on it's it's a matter of that we, we can learn from the various different areas we've been in so i've been really blessed i suppose to to encounter some beautiful people around the world and and work with some some of the best people in their field whether as you say in the education sector through cambridge university and or working with uh, some quite fascinating cultures uh, involved in multi different countries russia and canada and you know <laughs> yeah they're strange those canadians strange those canadians those canucks <laughs> um but yeah the what you can see about people and be open to their their different way of looking at life it's just been a fascinating journey but even uh, the agricultural sector i spent four years there working with farmers and so on and they don't take rubbish they're very straight uh, shooters and they'll, they'll look through things quite easily so it's been fascinating to see the the wealth and the knowledge and the experience that comes from these different sectors i'm very curious about russian view of the world compared to australian view of the world what have you noticed that's different well um i think russia's gone through a bit of a an evolution over the years and uh, and i think that with the, the removing a lot of the barriers um, helped. It helped uh, open their, them up to other points of view. Uh, the Russians that I dealt with, like I, I dealt with a six foot seven former KGB operative out of Vladivostok, 
who was heading up my uh, operations in Russia to roll out across 25 uh, uh, cities. And it was a fascinating. It's a four time zones in, in Russia. Why were you dealing with a KTB agent? Well, he had retired from being a spy and, uh, and had started up a business in, uh, in the educational sector um, in Russia. And a uh, fascinating fellow. And um, he went out as a businessman. He started up his business and he, he went out and greeted the 25 different centres he was setting up right across Russia, across his four time zones. And, of course, the tradition over there is that you have to drink vodka every time you seal a deal. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> He was fit as he used to swim in the Vladivostok in the, the frozen waters there, so that would really wake you up very quickly. And of course, he had these bottles of vodka, and he'd say, Um, my liver was a sacrifice for the greater good, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it just uh, the challenges that we the rest of us um, don't appreciate that Russia is just not one people's, it's multiple different cultures and, and peoples right across Russia, and just how you have to handle uh, a rollout of that sort of magnitude is quite fascinating. The, what I learned from him was was incredible. And he says, I, I always intimidate at six foot seven with six foot shoulders and uh, able to do you know, a 500 push-ups a day kind of person is very, very intimidating, but a super gentle person who had issues about the drinking culture in Russia. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You'd have to have issues if everywhere you went, you had to down some vodka. I'd be dead for sure. <laughs> My body couldn't process that. <laughs> Contract negotiation takes on a new perspective. <laughs> oh, my Lord. Well, I'm glad I'm, I don't have to contend with that. So across all your world travels and dealing with ex-KGB agents that are six foot seven yeah. and your experiences in business and negotiation, one of the big questions I have is, how do you define leadership? Ah, leadership, it's, it's one of the age-old uh, questions, and I defined it as being um, open, being open to different inputs and perspectives and, and so on. The one thing that probably uh, brings most leaders undone is that if we believe that we know everything, we know that through experience we know the rights or wrongs and can make wise decisions but quite often i've found throughout life that you don't know everything you don't know all the, the facts of a situation all the the marketplace so being open i think is is a phenomenally important uh, factor with most uh, leaders especially in the current uh, climate where i think that the issue is um, relates to the change that people have in their, the way they're going to pivot their businesses and how they're going to be open to new ideas in their businesses. So leadership is open, but open to your team, open to thoughts. And in that trust and that, that you build up with this openness, that you're allowed to say to people, look, I, I've taken on board what you've said and yeah, this is what I factored in. And it gives you an opportunity to go back and say, look, these are why I've gone a particular path rather than what's been advised. So it doesn't mean that you just say yes to everything. I think openness and yes are two totally different uh, factors. You have to be wise enough in your experience to say no because of these uh, factors or this information I've been able to ascertain. Or you've got to make a decision. Uh, so you've got to be firm on that as well. So leadership is, is quite that balancing act. <laughs> of the openness, yet making that, that wise decision based on the information you got from the openness. Yeah, I love it. So it actually speaks directly to my new book. Here we go. Here's a subtle promotion, People Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. 
thank you. Uh, where I explicitly talk about that balance between wisdom and compassion. And it, wh- how you've described openness, I've substituted compassion, which includes an element of being open, understanding about what's going on for people. And the wisdom piece is, includes being open to new ideas and consulting. Before we go on, I have a question about wisdom. You said there, you know, the balance between wisdom, you need to be wise and to be open. How do you gain wisdom? I think wisdom is, well, it comes from experience. I've seen some very intelligent people, very academically intelligent people who, uh, based on just pure facts, made very poor decisions uh, on things. So the wisdom obviously has always been that that other element that's been hard to teach people and so on. It's one of those true defining qualities within leaders is the fact that throughout our life journey, and I've, I've had a fantastic journey from a journalist through law, through to management and then global management and so on. To me, I would never have envisaged where I would have gone in my journey but that journey was because I was open to new experiences, new ideas and, and learning opportunities. And I think like your, your books and, and Zoe, there's a way that we can read about and, and, and enrich our knowledge and our, our minds about different perspectives. So it's not just the academic, I know one plus one and all that sort of stuff. It's more of the, I've made mistakes. Absolutely, I'm fallible. And that is one of the key things that I should possibly put right at the top of my uh, resume is I am fallible. Have I made mistakes in life? Absolutely, I've made mistakes in my life. Have I been afraid to then go out and do other things having learnt from those mistakes? No. And I think that every business leader and every person out there can look to the inspiration of others who have made mistakes, learnt from them, and then gone out and improved uh, in the next process the wisdom comes from that learning process and you know what concerns me is where people become so risk averse within companies or risk averse within government departments and agencies and so on that we get to the point where you're sort of stymied you have no ability to move forward in this current climate of huge risk absolutely we have to support new thinking, support new ideas and make wise decisions on who to go out there with. So wisdom is probably even more important right now than probably any other time for the last hundred years. Where are you seeing wisdom around us? Um, I think there is an openness to the, the fallibility and the, there's a, there's a realisation, I suppose, that just because we did something last year or, or six months ago or whatever in a particular way does not mean that that is the way forward. I think there is some discussion politically and discussion within uh, business circles and around the corner that coming out of this pandemic, whether it's now, or whether it's in six months or in two years' time or whatever, I think that there's a golden opportunity for all of us as business leaders to say, well, okay, how do we reinvent ourselves? and the thing that I was putting off for years and years as a business leader or as a team in a company, do we now take the opportunity? Do we say, okay, we've all stepped back, we've shut down, we've gone home, we're now coming back. What can we do to improve the process that's going forward? And that comes through knowledge of history, knowledge of what hurt us in the past or some of the problems that we had in our processes, the way we think or whether the business is structured. And then looking, okay, 
what do we need to do if we had a clean slate and wiped all that away? Wisdom tells us we've learned from all that. What can we do better? And I think that's absolutely critical uh, right now. You know, the different uh, industrial revolutions over the years, you saw your dinosaurs that didn't change, died, and the new industries and the new way of thinking thrived. So Australia is absolutely perfectly positioned to think, okay, let's do it differently. Yeah, I think you're right. I think it's Australia is well positioned to create something new mm-hmm. individually and collectively. And um, we have a lot of valuable resources and a strong ethos of collaboration and collective wisdom, which is really, we're really fortunate to, to be here in that. One of the things that really stuck with me many years ago, I was working for an agricultural business headquartered out of uh, Racine, Wisconsin, America. And they always said about Australians as leaders, we were the horizontal leaders. In other words, because we're so low in resources and number of people and so on, we tended to have leaders that had four or five caps on their heads. So that sort of Jack and Jill of all trades gave us this beautiful breadth of experience and knowledge across multiple departments. Over in, in America and Europe and a lot of the Northern Hemisphere big conglomerates, they all became siloed and very became specialist within their particular fields and could have a career path within that field. It meant that they lost this horizontal transient kind of experience and they used to swap people around purely to try and gain what Australians got as part of the natural uh, order out here. So I think Australia has this competitive advantage that we have this ability to think horizontally in our businesses and understand all the different divisions, departments, the sales, the accounting, the law, all those different components, the people management and so on, and say, we've got a lot of CEOs here. That's a really interesting observation. And I think the practice of having people shop around into other roles within an organization is not fashionable anymore. Like, I don't think it's as done as it might have been in the past, except for, as you mentioned, agriculture. You know, agricultural, like farmers, food producers in particular, are so adaptive. And I worked with one company, the Australian Agricultural Company, and they have a number of different uh, stations and they routinely move people around so you can get a taste of a different manager a different style a different process and different ways of doing things and that creates a lot of versatility in their workforce as well as they have vertical promotion as well you go from you know hand like helper to Mm. stock handler and stock manager and so on that's a fascinating observation you said earlier that, you know, as a leader, I am fallible. And I'm curious about that, you know, with with such a long history. Can you tell me about a time where you experienced a failure and how you worked your way through that and how you came out the other end? Geez, I've I've got a whole 800 pages here. Do you want me to go? (laughs) No, um, I can talk about a a recent experience and it's actually um, quite confronting, I suppose, to know what happened. I spoke about that, that Russian fellow and how daunting and, and scary a six foot seven person is well i'm over six foot myself and i'm bald and I'm, you know fairly uh, can be intimidating if uh, need be and i dealt with my accounts department and chatted to them about a particular uh, matter of that at the time and um i was approached afterwards by one of the very brave souls within the team and i have to say that brave because the way i came across was very scary and very intimidating. 
And I didn't know it. I was just, um, in my mind, in my uh, eyes, I was just purely annoyed and saying, look, lift your game. Now, uh, I'm not one prone to um, swearing or belittling people or anything like that. It's, it's not my style. But to then find through another person's eyes that I'd actually put a bit of fear into the team made me realise there's different ways to actually approach a particular situation. And I actually didn't know all the facts of that particular matter or those series of matters. So it was to me to be open and approachable enough that this person could actually give me that valuable feedback. And I think that the fallibility, if, if we go in there and say, no, we're right about everything and so on, that reputational, the way that we behave is becomes very much a sledgehammer in the relationship between the, the leader and the manager and the rest of the, the team. The team there want a job. They actually want success. They actually want to join and, and benefit together in that success. So I think that to go to them say, no, I want this, uh, that very tyrannical kind of approach or, you know, this annoyed, scary kind of approach absolutely uh, sends that ripple effect through the team. And uh, there's a balancing between I have expectations, but it's how that's communicated. I think is really the lesson that I learned out of all that. So the improvement for that uh, system was to actually go through, find the actual actual facts, the behind the scenes, the why, as to what what actually occurred before I started saying, oh, I need this now, kind of thing. And I think that's really important to know that I should not have approached it that way. And it made me approach my team differently in the last eight or nine months. It's been fantastic. I think that there's been a real respect, mutual respect. And the team certainly lifted their game. They said, oh, now we know, okay, there's the expectation, there's a level. But the approach of how it's communicated and so on is, is really important and a lesson that I learned. Well, that's very courageous of them because, well, first of all, things that amplify intimidation are, as you mentioned, size, height, masculinity can be in its own thing, intimidating, and then positional power and authority. Everybody who's got positional authority, everything we do is amplified and can be translated as intimidating. I'm really curious, though, was it, was it your tone that they were, it was your tone as opposed to the, the specific yeah, it message wasn't, or both? it wasn't the words, it was the tone and intensity. And, uh-huh. and you, you know me well enough, uh, Zoe, over the years I'm a fairly passionate guy, <laughs> so I can get fairly, you know, intense in my, my conversation. I think that that's something that I need to take notice of more when I'm actually communicating with people. Wow, yeah. And that's really hard to have the mirror put up. Well, for it's hard to put our own mirror up, I should say, and really does need that outside reference to say, hey, that tone was not so great. <laughs> well, good on them. That's really useful. So as a leader, like you've been in so many different contexts, yeah. how do you define success and has that changed over the years? Uh, that's a very, very good question. And success in the good old days when I was first started and say whether I was working at OPSM, I was working the due diligence team. So success for us was purchasing a, an operation from the Jardines group for the um, optical distribution stores out of Hong Kong and, and so on. So to me, success was we succeeded in concluding that contract and we bought the thing for a good price. We did right by our shareholders and, and so on. So that's one very, I've now got to know as being a very two-dimensional kind of success. That's very uh, dollars and effects. And yes, every business needs to be successful. But I think that success is far broader than that in true leadership and true uh, management style. 
success is is me realizing how I uh, dealt with the accounts department recently. If I had dealt differently, then I'd be at war with a particular group within my own organization, and that's that's me as failure. Success is measured in not just the fact that you know, dollars are good at the bottom line. Yes, that is a financial viability success, but it's also the health of the team, the health of the company as a whole. And I think this is the biggest challenge as leaders that we have is how do we really balance that thing, engagement with people, with other fellow human beings? It's not a dictatorial approach. It's a, my job is to remove barriers to make them do a better job and to, to take a lot of the, the stresses and strains off their shoulders. Now, that makes my job really, really challenging now because there are a lot of barriers <laughs> and some of them I actually can't physically remove myself. So it, working together on a solution is absolutely critical. So success to me is the engagement, the communication, the ability to inspire in others to actually have input. And I think if everything went through this brain, I tell you what, I'd still be, you know, much lower in life and I, I wouldn't have succeeded. I know that this cannot solve all problems. My brain cannot solve all problems. So I think that as a collective team, we all have a shared success, success in a, a good environment, success in, in low staff uh, turnover, success in, in the ability to actually have people realize their, their journeys. And one of my greatest successes was to inspire one of my staff many years ago. She went on to study at university and started up her own business. I lost her as a staff member, a phenomenally valuable staff member to the team. My success is to absolutely be proud of the fact that she realized her potential and became a business owner herself. To me, that is success. <laughs> So success is not just that dollar bottom line. It's a success isn't even holding on to that person forever because you might be stifling them from their own potential to become a great person. So yeah, success, you, you ask a very simple question, but it's really complex. It is the more <laughs> experienced we become. I think it's easy when we first start in our careers to have set goals that are external to us and say, when I hit that, then I know I, I can do stuff. <laughs> and I think that's a natural thing to have that as we progress in our leadership journey. And then we start to expand it a little bit. Once we know that we can set a plan and, and kick some goals, it's about the quality of the journey, the quality of the experience, the quality of the relationships around us that supports and influences and enriches that whole initial success. You mentioned earlier, like one of the key to successes is not only the financial health, but the team health. Do you have a way of monitoring or measuring that? Ah, geez, you asked some good questions. <laughs> Thanks, Zoe. <laughs> <laughs> um, look, monitoring health is, it looks, it's a very tricky uh, business, especially uh, I explained the, uh, the accounting example earlier. If I had gone there and had a team that, did not have trust or faith in me to be able to approach me, that would have continued to be a failure and would have continued on. It would have been a very, very bad result all around. So I think that talking to the, the measurement of the teams, it comes down to, I suppose, their ability to, to speak to me. Like I've, I've, you know, everyone talks about the 
the open door uh, policy that uh, senior managers have. And yes, I understand, I agree with that, but there's open door and then there's open door. Anyone can describe it. There's, yes, the physical open door might be there, but quite often people turn and say, look, I'm too busy. Can you come back to me later? And so on. And I think that we do have to manage our time and manage what is important right now. And people have to respect the fact that I might have to focus on something at this moment as any manager or anything I may have to do. But it's absolutely having a bit of a the antenna at the back of the head type thing to pick up on some of the signals. And they may be that, you know, people aren't turning up uh, to work. They may be uh, ill for a reason. They might be uh, uh, in it a lack of engagement in meetings and so on and just constantly literally monitoring that about your teams and about your people and instilling the skill set because again it can't all be me it can't be through the single leader it's empowering and, and training and skilling up and you know, using your books to, to actually go to people and say look have a read of this have a think about how you're engaging with your team and how you're managing your staff it's the ad empowerment is phenomenally important in the measurement of whether the team's successful i've seen siloed teams that felt that they were under attack all the time and what it was was the particular leader at that time was no it's my little kingdom my little fightum i'm going to look after these people and in what they did they just basically isolated themselves from the rest of the organization the rest of the organization reacted to that. <laughs> Their team felt that they're under attack and that became a, a, in the DNA of the organization. It meant that that team uh, weren't trusting, weren't willing to go out and weren't willing to talk to people. I think that's important to realize just how destructive that can be. And what was required in that particular example of how that was resolved was in a friendly gesture through a neutral party, the manager was approached and then walked through some of the reasoning as to their conduct and the, their team's conduct. And then from that, an explanation of how that was received the other end by giving them a chance to actually see it from the other end. When that occurred, there was a far greater realization, well, we're actually part of both the cause and, <laughs> and the recipient. And, and there was blame on both sides. But at the end of it, I think there was an awareness, there was a trust, and there was a willingness to actually impart and empower and to teach and train that manager and their team. It ended up being that we resolved. And that was, uh, in my case, an example was in Taiwan. So I had a particular team in Taiwan who literally came to me one day and said, well, we want to sell the competitor's product. <laughs> so I knew that there was actually a bit of a problem there. Oh, my God, that's a big problem. <laughs> they, they became one of the best teams globally for us and absolutely passionate once it got to the base and the, the heart of the problem and how they were being treated by the rest and how what they felt. So we are human beings, and I think it's really important to notice these issues and work on a specific subject at the time. One of the things I believe is people problems when they surface are not generally personality problems. They're often systems problems, a structure of an organization or a process that can drive that. It certainly sounds a little bit like that in your Taiwan example, where your team was motivated to have good results and that caused a problem. And then that sort of they built up behavior around it to protect themselves. Well, one of the, the greatest things that ever uh, impacted me was I was lucky. I was very fortunate to meet uh, General Cosgrove for dinner one night. And I, yeah, I know. I was, I was sat there. Name dropping. <laughs> yeah, name dropping. Absolutely name dropping. <laughs> and I, I would be absolutely, I'd drop his name anytime. Uh, quite an inspirational human being. And he explained to me 
that uh, with our Australian army and Australian military, that the soldiers are fed first and served first, the generals last. And I said, well, why? I thought you need to be the, the leaders. And it's because the generals know, they came up through the ranks, they know the soldiers are putting their lives on the line, that they are the reason we will win a battle or lose a battle, <laughs> not the generals. The generals will, by all means, have their input and, and so on. But it's the courage, the bravery and the, of the front line <laughs> that actually serves the entire military. So they are served first. And it's that respect and it's understanding of where everyone actually works together. And the soldiers know this <laughs> and know that, you know, this is the order of things. I think it's quite an inspirational uh, way of looking that when you're a business leader, your staff <laughs> are your front line. Your staff are there handling the complaints from their customer or the delivery issues or whatever. And it's actually your ability to empower them or to look after them and to make them stronger and better and more motivated actually has a healthy, successful business. Mm. That's a great story and a great insight. And I was thinking, like, what is the business context where you, you, know, you feed your frontline soldiers first and you just said it there, you know, setting them up to be empowered so they're getting feedback, they're getting development and encouragement to be successful in their own right. Mm. I'm curious about leadership practices that sustain you. So it's a big job. Leadership is hard. How do you look after yourself? What are some practices that you keep you showing up day after day? You know, especially like something through a pandemic, no one has a leader signs up. Hey, I put me at the helm during a pandemic where there are no clear answers, no clear paths. How do you get through that? Yeah, I would like to say big bear hugs and just embrace it, but <laughs> it's not a matter of that. Um, you know, look, I have to uh, I'll be a bit revealing uh, here for you. I felt isolated. Uh, in this pandemic, I have to say, uh, because I'm a very tactile, very people person. And um, as a managers, uh, there's the macro managers, the micro managers, there are different styles of, of management for different leaders out there. And quite often, various managers love that finger on the pulse kind of stuff. And this has certainly caused quite a, a fracturing of, of teams and, and a motivational issue. So one of the things that uh, inspired me is the, the regular meetings and, and so on through Zoom, through online uh, purposes. And, you'll, and you said earlier when we first started our meeting, oh, you're all dressed up, you're in a suit and all that sort of stuff. That's because it's a mindset thing with me. It's a matter of I put on the, the suit to get my, my mind thinking, not necessarily who I'm dealing with. I think quite often I'll go through a day and actually not have any engagement in a physical, visible sense with anyone. So did, we didn't matter what I was dressed in. But it's more of a, how does that help me keep my mind on the game and on, on the business? And one of the things that really helped, and we've got a, a series of every morning, there's a there's a around the water cooler, catch up. Hi, how you going? How's Mother's Day? How's the weekend? You know, what's up tonight? Bloody cold this morning, all that sort of stuff. And I think that that general chit chat, we're not talking business, we're not talking anything else. It's the camaraderie. It's the hi. It allows us, getting back to your previous question about having that sense of how's the team going and how and picking up on some of the, the visual and the audio uh, signals of whether a person's going through a tough time, that's how you do it. You've got to keep somehow that connection, whether it's through the video screen or whether it's on phone calls or emails and so on. It's just keeping a wary eye as to the health of your team. And I think that the improvement in the number of times that we've had formalised, like I had um, one of my accounts um, payable uh, team 
hadn't emailed back is the fact that we were having regular meetings. So I said, well, just email back to such and such and such and such and tell them, hey, look, we had this meeting and it's a weekly basis is at this time and this is what we chatted. And he said, why? And I said, well, you effectively used to do that from your desk to the person next to you. Now they don't see anything at all. So this is your way of just touching base. Your emails become your new friend, your team. We've got team viewer and, and so on on our uh, site. So use it more. And it's sort of inspiring people to not be afraid of the technology and to just reach out and touch base uh, with people. So I think that's been some of the challenges lately. I think this pandemic is particularly hard on extroverts like you and me, you know, (laughs) oh, it's been, it's really hard. So I ran a program last week, a group program, and I said, it's a good thing that you guys are all on video because if we were all in a room together, I'd break all the social norms and give you all hugs. I couldn't help myself. So it's good. I need to isolate myself so I don't break all the rules. Last sort of question for you, is there a particular resource that you turn to again and again to inspire, uplift you as a leader? It could be a, a book or a process. Look, there's multiple books and you've got some great books uh, that, that are out there. And I think that I'd, I would encourage, and this isn't some sort of you know, paid endorsement or anything like that. I've actually read um, through multiple books throughout my life. I'm, I'm a reader. I you know, started life as a journalist and, and studied law and all that sort of stuff. You get really used to reading books. And I think there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of um, past experiences and lessons learned from that. But I think one of, the, one of the things I like is when you start focusing on certain things like compassion or when you're talking about the emotive side or the, the empathy that one needs to have as a leader. I think that you talk uh, about a lot of very valuable things that need to be triggered and reminded to us. Like in my fallibility as a leader, I'll quite often get caught in ruts throughout my life. And one of the things that I do on a regular basis, at least once a year around Christmas, is I totally shift myself out of that comfort zone into an uncomfortable zone and say, get away from that that rut, (laughs) get away from the thinking and think out of of the challenging square a bit. And I think that that's part of our um, things about whether it's reading or I look at Richard Branson and I look at some of the Ariana Huffington and, and so on. There are absolutely great leaders out there. Uh, she's uh, probably introduced one of the greatest things to the Huffington Post uh, around the world, where it was challenging people's thinking about uh, stuff. You don't have to always agree with the people that you're uh, you're dealing with, uh, but look to them as inspiring you to get out of that rut and get into more of a let your brain percolate about can I do things better for myself, for my team, for my company, for my family, for my friends, there is always ways of actually learning from multiple sources. There are podcasts, there are uh, YouTubes, there are all sorts of things that are out there that I think we're a very resource-rich world now where I think that people can actually learn if they're willing to. I think that's the critical part at the end is read the books, listen to the podcasts, get onto the YouTubes, go and, and learn from other people's lessons because so many people have made mistakes that you don't have to make to learn that wisdom yourself i think i could be using youtube better because the only thing i'm using it for right now is to watch funny videos (laughs) cats no it's not a cat's one of the things i've discovered is honest trailers so it's like satirical interpretation of movie trailers (laughs) 
and it's, it's cracking me up. So it's, it's serving a particular purpose. It's not exactly meant for learning or shifting insight, but <laughs> for amusement. <laughs> Can you give me an example recently of something you read or listened to or watched that went ping for you? Um, Oh, look, I, I think there's been a lot of examples recently about COVID itself. Uh, <laughs> talking about your, your humour, humour is a great way of learning something these days. And I looked at uh, the New Zealand police um, YouTube examples recently about uh, COVID. What it said, it was endorsed by the New Zealand police, but it wasn't necessarily had New Zealand police officers in it. But it was an absolute tongue-in-cheek look at how the police force in New Zealand was reacting to all of this. Well, we need to have a community, but everyone's isolated and all the, you know, the ironies of a lot of the messaging that was going out there. And I think that that very tongue in cheek allowed people to laugh, but also get the message about what is happening. And I think one of the things I can learn from that is that I need to use humour more in the stuff that I do. Uh, one of the inspirational things about uh, my team at the moment, they're all the future doctors of Australia, there's 17,000 of them. And I think to myself, they are all you know, the average age of 23. And I think, you know, they reach in a beautiful time in their life where things can happen, things can be done. And uh, I spoke earlier about the inspiration of, you know, 1,300 odd of them all putting their hand up to volunteer to work on COVID. To me, I learned from that. But the funniness that, and the humour that uh, came through in a lot of our examples, we ran a thing called the Vampire Cup just recently. And that's that sounds basically, very dodgy for a bunch dodgy, of medical yeah, doctors. <laughs> and that's where all of us basically put our arm out and, and donate blood. And there was a, a challenge across 22 colleges for this Vampire Cup and the Vampire Badges. And, the, and I thought... How good is that? And that all the different universities, the medical universities around the country, are all vying for giving more blood. And I thought, in a time where people haven't gone to the Red Cross and the, you know people are still getting sick and still need blood and so on, I thought, what a great program that inspired me amongst my own medical students. And I turned around and went, wow, <laughs> good on you. <laughs> Did you get the Count Dracula Award? No, ANU, though, which I'm through the Australian <laughs> National University, it looked like we might win, so fingers crossed. <laughs> Keep more blood. <laughs> Drain yourself dry. That's all I oh, say. I love it. Adrian, thank you so much. It was a pleasure listening to your stories and hearing your insights, and I count it as a special privilege to count you as a friend and a colleague, so thank you so much. Absolutely, Zoe. Thank you so much. I am just so loving this series of interviews of experienced and seasoned leaders. In this conversation with Adrian, my key takeaway was this whole idea of humility and carrying with us the thought that I am fallible. And by this, we can stay open and curious to learning opportunities and seek out feedback from people. I mean, it's one thing to have a staff member be brave enough to give it to us, but to seek it out and be open to it is one way that we can be better at our jobs. And I think that's a that's definitely a key takeaway for me. So if you enjoyed this, please forward to somebody that you care about who would enjoy hearing Adrian's wisdom as much as I did. In the meantime, lead well, live well.